0: When I was a child at primary school, I stole something from a shop. It's something I still bitterly regret. I uh, say this today because I want it to be a warning to us all. The item I stole was a birthday card with WWF wrestlers on it. I stole it because of peer pressure. Back then all the boys at school were into wrestling. They watched it on the telly, they played it in the playground, they collected the cards and the stickers. We didn't have a TV at home at that time so I could never watch it. And my parents didn't like me to talk about it because they thought that it promoted violence. And although I believe them now to be right on that score, it didn't make my life easy at school. I was bullied, I was an outcast, I was never included in the games or the conversations. So one day, I stole a card from the local newsagent so I could give it to one of my classmates on their birthday to try and get into the in crowd. I take full responsibility for my actions, but without peer pressure, it would never have happened. Because of peer pressure, I did something I knew was morally wrong. I became in that moment a hypocrite. What I believed and what I did in practice were totally different from one another. And still today, peer pressure rules in our schools. Children and young people pretend to like certain types of music, support certain football teams, dress in a certain way so they can fit in with the in-crowd. When they get home and are behind closed doors, they're completely different. They're themselves but it's not just children adults can be just as hypocritical we too can play a role put on a mask how many times through our lives when we've been asked what did you do at the weekend by a colleague or a neighbour do we tell them everything apart from the fact that we went to church how many times do we join in the gossip with everyone else how many times do we swear like those around us are how many times do we drink that just bit too much just so we can be like everybody else in the room? We know these things are wrong at home and in church with different people. These things are against our beliefs. We know against what the Bible teaches. But we find ourselves doing them again and again and again. Peer pressure, when given into, leads us to a place where what we believe and what we do cease to be the same thing. It leads us into hypocrisy, which, by the way, is the number one allegation thrown at Christians by the onlooking world. Hypocrisy has and always will turn people away from Jesus. The story of our passage today is one of hypocrisy caused by peer pressure. The Apostle Peter had once been granted an extraordinary vision from God. You can read the full story in Acts 10 and 11 when you get home, if you like. In his vision, he saw a sheep descending from heaven with all sorts of animals on it. As the vision continued, he heard a voice saying, Peter, get up, kill, eat. Peter had at first protested. On the sheet were many animals unclean to Jews. And Peter, being very devout, rigidly stuck to only meat that was kosher. But Peter then heard another voice that was direct and to the point. Peter, do not call impure anything that God has made clean. The vision was so important that it was repeated in the same format three times. And then as Peter sat there bamboozled by it, he receives the call to go and visit Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a high-ranking officer in the enemy's army, an oppressor of Israel, and of course, a Gentile. And suddenly the vision became clear. Peter was not to look on Cornelius as unclean and avoid him as all good Jews did to Gentiles. He was to go and help. And incredibly we read in Acts that as Peter preached the gospel, Cornelius and his whole family came to faith. They were unmistakably filled with the Holy Spirit and so Peter baptised them all. And Peter then stayed in their home for a few days, enjoying fellowship, meals, and much conversation with the family. It is, of course, one of the glorious, boundary-breaking moments in Acts. Some of us in this room will have known this story from being children. When we read it, we know that God is on the move, the gospel's going out, and the most unlikely people are coming to faith. The message of the story is very clear. No one is unclean to God. He loves all people. He gave his son to die for all people. Through Christ, God wants all the people of the world to turn and call him Father. Through the work of the Spirit, he wants to create one worldwide family without barriers or discrimination at all. Now Peter was, of course, extremely privileged to be the recipient of this vision and to have part in this glorious work of God. But that did not make him immune from making mistakes. And in Antioch, he made a terrible one. Peter had travelled to Antioch, no doubt, to witness firsthand the amazing things that God was doing through the ministry of Paul. And when he arrived, he joined in the work And he was openly sharing meals and conversations with Gentiles Just as he'd been shown to do in his vision with Cornelius But then into Antioch arrived some Jewish nationalists From the capital Jerusalem They said they'd been sent by James, Jesus' brother The leader of the church there But we have no proof that that was true They may have just made that up to pretend they had authority. Regardless of the truth, when these people arrived, they started putting the pressure on them. Peter, you're a devout Jew. You know you shouldn't be eating with Gentiles. Peter, you follow the law in every other area. Why are you ignoring this bit? Peter, what if these new believers are fakes and turn out to be troublemakers? They will give the Jews a bad name. The Romans will clamp down on us again. We'll lose the temporary peace and the special privileges that we have at the moment. Peter, the godly believers back home, think you're abandoning them. They feel betrayed by your careless fraternising with Gentiles who've mistreated us Jews in the past. Peter, 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 come on now, do what you know you should. Come along now. Now that is imagined, we don't know what they said exactly, but we know that the peer pressure worked. Because soon after their arrival, Peter completely changed face. He drew back from the Gentiles, he separated himself from them, he refused to eat at their table. And verse 12 tells us that he did this purely because he was afraid of this small group of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. And in that moment, Peter became a hypocrite. He went against everything that he knew in his heart of hearts to be true. He went against even what God had personally shown him in that great vision and when the whole family of Cornelius had come to faith. What a collapse this was and all down to pressure put on Peter by his peers. I want us to think just for a moment of the great pain that would have been caused by Peter's actions here. Imagine you are in Antioch and you've invited Peter round for dinner, but he keeps making excuses. Eventually, you press him. Come on, Peter. You said ages ago you'd come. We want to hear about this Jesus fellow from you. But Peter replies, Sorry, I, I cannot eat with you. You are Gentiles. You are unclean. If I come into your home, you'll make me unclean too. Sorry, I, I can't do it. There's an old saying that you are what you eat. What is even more true is that we are who we eat with. You think about it. Who would you be prepared to share meals with? Only your nearest and dearest. The people that we share meals with are the most important people to us. And so there are not many things more hurtful or more divisive in this world than refusing to share table with someone who has invited you to dinner to do so is utterly offensive so there is no doubting the message that peter's actions are sending out here yes they may still be able to join the family of god through jesus but gentiles will always somehow be less important than jews that jews are still god's inner circle if you like And of course, once you create a circle within a circle, you're sending a message to those in the outer ring that they should strive to move into the inner one. And that takes us back to what the whole of Galatians is all about. Do Gentiles need to add to their conversion to become fully acceptable to God? Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become followers of Jesus? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to eat only kosher food? Do they need to observe all the sacred days and the Sabbaths? Is faith in Jesus enough to be justified before God? Or do you need the law as well? And Peter's actions here firmly state the latter. The Gentiles do need Moses as well as Christ, they do need law as well as spirit. That is not what Peter said and did with Cornelius. But that is what he has reverted to now under the peer pressure of the nationalists. This is going to cause immense pain to Gentiles. It's going to put many people off coming to God at all because nothing is as repulsive to non-believers as hypocrisy. Paul was furious when he saw this happening. So angry, verse 11 tells us that he opposed Peter to his face. More than that, verse 14 tells us that he confronted Peter in public, before a crowd, which goes against all the advice you would normally give on how to deal with a conflict or correcting a brother. Paul was also deeply hurt by what had happened, because his good friend Barnabas, who travelled with him in the early days of his ministry, preaching and teaching to the Gentiles, had also given in to the pressure and been led astray in this way. And Paul clearly feels personally betrayed by Barnabas and his refusal to no longer eat with the Gentiles. But the reason that Paul is most upset is because he feels the gospel is being compromised. Not only compromised, destroyed by this hypocrisy. A gospel that maintains that Jews are more important to God than Gentiles is no gospel at all. It's a lie, and a dangerous lie at that. Because it will put Gentiles off from receiving from God's love for themselves. And this is presumably why Paul mentions this very painful incident again in this letter to the Galatians when he would much rather have left it in the past. Because there were now nationalist Jewish Christians in Galatia telling the gentile converts there that they needed to be circumcised. They needed to become Jews if they really wanted to be acceptable to God. And they were using this incident as support for their case. The apostle Peter, you know, Jesus' own friend, he thinks the Gentiles are unclean. He won't eat with them. So come on you Galatians, you've got to be circumcised. We know Paul started the church here. He obviously just hadn't got round to telling you this bit yet. Paul will not let this stand. So in this fiery letter, he reminds his readers of exactly what did happen in Antioch and how even there he had challenged Peter to his face, proving from the scriptures that he was wrong. And that is what Paul launches into next. From verses 14 to 21, you get a rigorous defence of the message that Jesus had given him to preach to the Gentiles. These verses are very dense. You can sense Paul's anger in them and the urgency with which he is writing. But in Paul's mind, it's essential that the Galatians get this message fast and are not turned away. What Paul says is this. All people, Jews and Gentiles, need to be justified by God. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's standards. We all need help to be acceptable to Him once more. Once we've been justified, we're made right. God looks on us and sees us as righteous. And that means we come into a new standing. We've been brought into a right relationship. We're welcomed into God's covenant family, the family He began right back with Abraham. How can we tell if we're part of God's family? Well, it's no longer by keeping the Jewish law. Peter and Paul had discovered that the whole point of the Jewish law was to point people to their need for a saviour, to point people to Jesus. The only way of being justified, being made righteous, of entering God's family, is through faith in him. What is faith? How do you know if you've taken a necessary step of commitment? Well, you will have made a decision, a confession, stated publicly your belief that Jesus is Lord, that he died for your sin, that you've been raised from the dead. And you will now be living a life of loyalty to Jesus, a life consciously following in his footsteps, a cause that you will allow nothing in the world to distract you from. This is what the Greek word pistis, which we translate as faith, means. It's both a conscious decision and a continued loyalty. In the same way that Jesus himself made the decision to follow the Father's plan and faithfully went through it, obedient all the way to the cross for us. This faith in Christ, even as Christ is faithful to us, is now all that matters the Jewish law has finished its remit and remember this is Paul saying this a devout Jew he knows that even the Jews couldn't keep all the law their history is one of suffering the consequences of their failure in that regard that doesn't mean that life is now one just big free for all living without the law doesn't mean that believers can be led into sin all the time Rather, through Christ and the Spirit, believers would be led to an even higher standard of living. After all, Jesus didn't break the law, he fulfilled it. So eating with Gentiles was not sinful, as the Jews had once supposed. It was what God wanted. He wanted one family in fellowship, round one table, together. What is sinful is for the Jews to try and rebuild the law again, now that Christ put it to death. After all, if the law is what matters, we all need to watch out, because we've broken it, and will continue to do so. Now I know this is a really complicated argument, but in verses 19 to 21, Paul sums it up definitively in this way. Following the law was what led Paul to Jesus. In meeting Jesus on the Damascus road, he died to the law. That Jewish identity that he prized so much was put to death. All that mattered now was following Jesus and living with the Spirit within him. Paul discovered that he had to lose everything that he'd valued once so highly and living a new identity, a follower of Christ. After all, if you could live just as a devout Jew and be justified by the law, then Israel's Messiah had died for nothing. And that would be unthinkable. The resurrection proved that Jesus was God's son, that this was God's plan. The resurrection proved that Moses could only get you so far. If you want to enter all that God has for you, you need Jesus. Now, I know you here this morning, and I don't think any of that will be new to you. This is the gospel that you have been following, some of you, for decades. But it's good to be reminded of it again, that we have been set free. Free from sin and death, free from condemnation, free from the law. That we are part of the one family of God. As Gentiles, we do not need to get circumcised. We do not need to follow all the minutiae of the Jewish law. Praise the Lord for that. But what I do think is relevant to us about this passage is the call to ongoing faithfulness. To be people of faith is not just about a one-off decision that we made long ago. It's about living a life of loyalty to Jesus. To stand up and be counted as followers, whatever the circumstances may be we are to be aware that peer pressure still exists. In fact, as our society drifts further and further away from its Christian moorings, peer pressure is only going to increase. We must stick rigidly to what Jesus has taught us. We must keep offering the gospel to all people without adding extra requirements. And when people tempt us off the path, back into old habits bad behaviour the way we used to be and the things we used to do before we came to faith we have to stand firm when we are tempted to behave differently just so we can fit in with the in crowd be that in our workplace the pub or in our community we must remember that there's only one crowd really being worth a member of and that is the one family of God.